Welcome to Waterbrook Church, located in Victoria, Minnesota. Glorious Disruption is about when Jesus shows up and turns everyone's world upside down. We believe this study of God's Word is about to turn many people's lives completely around. It may be even upside down because that's what happens in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus comes to people who are absolutely stunned and amazed by Him, and they are profoundly and gloriously changed forever. Let's begin by praying that this happens here at Waterbrook and beyond for our joy and amazement in Jesus. Let's worship together. And uh, hear of the gospel repeated time and time again. And I, I do pray and hope that as we have been reading scripture and praying together that you um, have had the word of God minister to your heart, the songs. Um, we come into worship in various positions, don't we? And uh, you might have come in with hope this morning and joy and just found your uh, you were lifted up on, the, on your praises that were already in your heart today. Some of you may have come in thinking, what am I doing here? And my hope and prayer, even as we study the word this morning, is that you will be encouraged with why you are here. Here's the great news. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. That's the, the great message of the gospel. And we're going to take communion uh, in a little bit here today. Um, it's actually, we, we do communion typically on the second and fourth Sundays of the month. But as Gabe and I were talking, we're going, how can you study the Lord's Supper and not uh, take the communion together this morning? And I hope that as we study the text of Scripture, it will actually elevate your understanding and your commitment to and your appreciation of the Lord's Supper, and that it may make you want to have it more often as the people of God, because this has been given to us by the Savior as a community meal as a mutual ministry, and I want to show you that a little bit this morning. But I'm going to invite you to pray with me, and as we pray together, let's invite the Holy Spirit to use the teaching of Jesus to change us and to encourage us. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we open up the Word, we ask the Holy Spirit now open up our hearts. As we listen to Jesus, help us hear Jesus. As Jesus tells us why he's going to the cross, Heavenly Father, teach us there to cling. Because without Jesus, without the cross, we would be without hope. But we have hope. And so, Heavenly Father, now minister to us that you might minister through us for the glory of the Lamb who was slain. And God's people said, Amen. I don't know how many of you actually know the backstory to Martin Luther King Jr.'s famous I Have a Dream speech. But um, in, the, in the background of that story, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. actually hadn't written the speech. Uh, it had been a period of difficulty. There were arrests. There were, uh, there were troubles. There was opposition. There was just uh, a schedule that was exhausting. And so the night before... Uh, Martin Luther King Jr. gave his I Have a Dream speech. Uh, his speechwriters actually wrote the speech. They went to work on a speech uh, for him to speak. And so the next day when the time came, he took the speech that was written for him and he began to read it. Now, thankfully, behind him was a gospel singer, Mahalia Jackson. Mahalia Jackson was in the background um, behind him as he's reading his speech and she repeatedly kept yelling at him tell him about the dream Martin tell him about the dream and so Martin Luther King Jr. comes to the end of his written text and moves into a spontaneous 
telling them about the dream. And he began to say, I have a dream. And that speech has gone down and, it, and will remain, I'm sure, in American history as one of the greatest speeches ever given. Now, when we come to Luke chapter 22, I want to say to you, because even in the reading of it, we, you know, familiarity breeds contempt. It is possible for us to come to this text of Scripture and not hear it with the weight that Luke intends and Jesus intends. This is... Jesus, I have a dream speech. It is Jesus about to go to the cross and he is intentionally speaking to his disciples in order to tell them why he is doing what he is doing and how they should understand the devastating events for them which will transpire over the next 24 hours and over the next three days. It's interesting for Jesus because he's got kind of double emotions going on, and you see this in him. The writer to the Hebrews says that we should fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the what? For the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. Isn't it interesting that Jesus can have joy before him as he goes to the cross, simultaneously despising the shame of it. And as you watch Jesus, even as he institutes the Lord's Supper here, you realize that he has a trajectory, a vision, over the next day and over the next days and over the next uh, years and into eternity that allows him to go to the cross with joy, even though he hates everything about being separated from his father in the sin and shame that he bears. Now, I, I point that out for you and I because the reality is that often we do not give weight to the Lord's Supper like we ought to. I don't know what your tradition is in your upbringing, but many times if you've been raised in, uh, I, I have family that's been raised in a Catholic background, if you have come out of that, the doctrine of transubstantiation sometimes brings a pendulum swing. If you've been in the Mass and you've heard the bell ring and you know that during the Mass when the bell rings, the elements become the literal body and blood of Jesus, the reaction to that teaching can cause you to swing the other way and diminish the power of the Lord's Supper in the life and the ministry of the church. Now the church, I think, historically has has kept the Lord's Supper as central and meaningful and powerful in different traditions. But I think practically we forget that we are commanded to do this as a ministry to one another, as an instrument by which we not only remember, but we remind each other to remember what Jesus Christ has done for us. So that's what I hope to do this morning. Some of you uh, just need to hear what Jesus is saying. Um, you need to hear the story of the meaning of the Lord's Supper before we take it. So when you take it today, you might receive the grace that the risen and, and present Jesus wants to give to you through the Lord's Supper. You'll remember in the early church, the Lord's Supper became foundational and central to the identity and the ministry of the early disciples. In Acts chapter 2, we are told that they met regularly. Right, And they were ministering the word and prayer and the breaking of bread. And all the way through the life and the ministry, 
as prayer was important, as the word was important, as sharing what they had in common was important, taking the Lord's Supper was a mutual ministry that identified them as Christ. And here's the, here's the dream. Here's what Jesus is communicating here and establishing by going to the cross. Jesus is creating a new covenant community that has been freed out of slavery to sin who will feast together forever on the goodness and grace of our crucified and risen Lord Jesus Christ. You got that? That's what we've been doing today, feasting on Jesus, celebrating by faith what he has done for us, what he's accomplished for us. We will do that on through eternity. And so the Lord's Supper is a reminder to us of what Christ has done for us, what he means for us, and what we have in him. So let me show you in this text. So there's two sections in this text. The first text is the preparation. If you look at Luke chapter 22, verses 7 uh, down to 13, Jesus gives instructions to his disciples. And I want you to take note of that because the instructions, I believe, are strategically orchestrated by Jesus. This is an orchestrated supper. Jesus intends his disciples to interpret the crucifixion in light of this meal. This meal gives meaning to what is about to happen. It provides a context for understanding the intent of his death. So Jesus is shepherding his flock. He is taking the supper and he's teaching them. He's giving them a context of interpretation. They won't get it immediately. But when we get into the book of Acts and into the epistles and the rest of the book of of the books of the Bible, you will see they get it, they apply it, they live in light of it, and they feed on it. But my dear friends, that's what the church is. That's what we are. We are a new covenant community, no longer under the law, the old covenant, but now under a new covenant established in the blood of Jesus, where we by faith participate regularly in the life of Jesus, his life and death. And that's what we're here for. It's a little reminder to you and to me that you are not meant to do the Christian life alone. You are not meant to go solo. In fact, there are elements to the Lord's Supper that we are to take regularly and contemplate regularly in order to fight the fight of faith, to help each other, to to appropriate by faith what Jesus has done for us at the cross. And I'll show you that as we walk through. But let me just show you why I think this is a strategically orchestrated supper. Number one, the timing of the supper. Look at verse seven. Then came the day of unleavened, of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So within the Jewish calendar, there were strong laws about how the Passover was to be celebrated. And that Passover was to be celebrated in the right place, on the right day, at the right time, every year. And it was clearly stipulated under the law. So the timing is interesting because they come together to eat this meal, the Passover meal. But when when Luke writes that it was the day on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed, You and I need to remember in the Jewish time framework, a day started at sundown. And there's debate about this, about when did Jesus actually have this meal? Is this 
the Passover meal. And the reason why there's some debate around that is because in the Gospel of John, chapter 19, we are told that it was the day of preparation for the Passover when Jesus was crucified. And John says it several times. For example, in John chapter 19, verse 31, since it was the day of preparation and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day. And, and when John makes that comment that it was a high day, what it means is it wasn't just a regular Sabbath. It was the Sabbath where the Passover had begun and where the meal of the Passover was to be taken. Now you and I need to stop immediately and realize what's going on here. Jesus is having the Passover meal with his disciples before everybody else is. That's how I think. You can disagree with me on that, but that's how I believe. He's having it on that day. It's the day, but typically the Passover lamb would be sacrificed the next day, and then the meal, the next sundown, is when they would have the meal. They'd sacrifice and then have the meal. And if that's the case, what you and I need to see is Jesus is exercising his lordship to make a very clear point to them that the sacrifice of the Passover lamb, which would happen the next day, would be what was happening when he was hung on the cross. That Jesus is God's Passover lamb being offered up for us. Isn't that good news for all of us? So the timing is not incidental and accidental. Tom Schreiner writes, Jesus, in celebrating the Passover meal with his disciples, is anticipating his own death. I want you to notice just quickly, if you, if you want to, that Jesus says to his disciples in verse 15, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. And the word earnestly desire there is a word that talks about a strong passion. So Jesus is saying this is very important. So important we're going to have it now so that you might understand what is unfolding. And so the timing is interesting. There's a strange sign as well. Notice in this passage of scripture in verse 8, Jesus says to Peter and John, Go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. And they said, where will you have us prepare it? And he said to them, behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters. Now we in our culture probably don't pick up on much that much. But in reality, that's a very strange sign. It would be something that would stand out to Peter and John because in the culture, women carried water not men. And so if a man walked by in that culture carrying water, they would recognize this. Now again, what I'm trying just to say by this is Jesus is setting up an unusual setting, a situation, so that I believe we would recognize and his disciples would recognize that this is just not an ordinary event, that he's actually up to something and that he is up to something significant in calling the Lord's Supper. The third thing I want you to see here is the furnished room. He says, follow this man into the house that he enters tell, and tell the master, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. Now, um, 
I just want you to think, you know, Mother's Day is coming up in a month. And uh, this is like trying to get into a Mother's Day brunch on the day of. Okay, it's a little warning for those of you who have forgotten Mother's Day is coming, that you can book it soon <laughs> and get in. But remember how the population of Jerusalem at the Passover? I mean, it would swell to over a million people coming to celebrate to find an empty room in Jerusalem where they could have the meal is not something that is easily found it would be strikingly remarkable now some commentators just say uh, we are not to see in this like the supernatural knowledge and wisdom of Jesus and insight is divine nature or just to see that Jesus has planned it maybe Jesus did make a plan with a man to carry a jug of water that would walk by just at the time Peter and John maybe he did talk to the man who had the house with the upper room and said when they come you and say the teachers ask for the room I'm the teacher make sure we get that room maybe Jesus ran ahead I don't think so I think what's actually being shown here is that Jesus has orchestrated this event to make it clear something significant, I would say miraculous, is happening. Tom Schreiner, who doesn't think that this is a sign of Jesus' divine uh, insight, still says this, we recognize as readers the Passover meal of Jesus with his disciples is one of the most important events in the entire narrative and so Luke who is very careful and specific about details in Luke and in Acts goes into great detail around this supper and has lines that surprise you and details that surprise you because Luke is trying to tell us something this Lord's Supper is a one of the most important things that we have studied in the gospel of Luke it is building towards this and out of this comes the cross and out of this event comes a practice that will stay in the church until Jesus Christ returns. Do you hear me? Now I, I say all of that for the simple reason that you and I ought to see the Lord's Supper as a meal that Jesus has prepared for us. An institution that Jesus in his grace has given to us so that we might appropriate and celebrate what he does at the cross. It should remind us of passages of scripture like Psalm 23 verse 5. You have prepared a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Surely you have anointed my head with oil. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. God does that for his son here in this text. And the son is doing that for us by going to the cross. It reminds us of the love of, of, in Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 4. He has brought me to his banqueting table and his banner over me is love. My dear friends, the Lord's Supper is a gift. It's an institution out of love from the great shepherd of the sheep to you and me. That's where I'm going to, as far as I'm going to go with that. I just want to ask you the question, have you thought that this was a gift of grace? An institution given to the church that was meant to glorify Jesus and minister to you. Do you give the kind of weight and significance to the Lord's Supper that we see regularly appropriated and practiced in Luke and in Acts and in the epistles. I hope you will. I hope you will. So the question is, 
What does the Lord's Supper communicate? Why does Jesus give us this? And so I want to say this. The Lord's Supper, and we don't say this in many areas of our lives and ministry uh, through Scripture, but the Lord's Supper is a sacred institution. And just by saying that, one of the things I want you to do is I want you to give weight to it, and then it also causes us to take it seriously. Uh, Take it seriously for a couple of reasons. One is you don't want to miss it as the people of God. And secondly, you don't want to misuse it as the people of God. And And the swing away from maybe some theological distortions of the Lord's Supper that have made it more than it actually is should not be answered by neglecting it altogether. Rather, we should hear and apply what Jesus has to say. And so let me give you several things that I believe Jesus is teaching in this text of Scripture. What is the purpose of the Lord's Supper? Here's the simple one that I think most of us are acquainted with. It's to remember. It's to remember what Jesus has done. The Lord's Supper commemorates the most important event in history, the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so Jesus, as he's instituting this, is in a sense looking back, taking the Passover meal, which the Passover was a practical meal given an institutional celebration given to the Jewish people by which they were to remember their deliverance from Egypt and slavery by the blood of the lamb that was put, the Passover lamb, on the doorpost. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 25, the Apostle Paul says, For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, what do you do? You proclaim the Lord's death until he... That's Paul. That's the weight. This is Paul who celebrated the Passover. And so Jesus says, you know, I've earnestly desired this, to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you that I will not eat it until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, said, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom comes. And he took bread, and when he gave, had given thanks, he broke it and he gave it and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in what? Remembrance of me. So one of the simple applications of the Lord's Supper is the Lord's Supper is a meal of remembrance in the same fashion as the Passover was, but it fulfills the Passover. The Passover was preparatory, but Christ would fulfill it. This is the new Passover meal where God passes over our sin once and for all through the sacrifice of his Son. So in the Old Testament, they were told, this shall be for you a memorial day about the Passover. You shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Deuteronomy 16, 2 and 5 and 6. And you shall offer the Passover sacrifice to the Lord your God from the flock or the herd at the place the Lord will choose to make his name dwell there. You may not offer the Passover sacrifice within any of your towns that the Lord has given you, but at the place where the Lord your God will choose to make his name to dwell in it, that you shall offer it. The Passover sacrifice in the evening at sunset at the time you came out of Egypt. Those were very clear. Place, time, 
uh, sacrifice. They were all clearly dictated to the people of Israel. Jesus chooses this time to institute the Lord's Supper because he is now offering a new Passover, a fulfillment of this. Again, listen to David Garland. He says, in the Passover meal, Israel not only relived and made present their past salvific exodus from Egypt in which God liberated them from slavery and death by passing over their houses sprinkled with the blood of the Passover lamb, but also anticipated their share in God's future and final salvation. The Lord's Supper retains the threefold orientation to the past, present, and future, as did the Passover, but it replaces the Passover for Christians. It reenacts the covenant established through Jesus' death, reinforces the unity of believers with Christ and one another, and reminds believers of Jesus' pledge that all will be fulfilled in the age to come. And so here's what he's saying. We need to regularly remind each other how we've been saved. We need to remember regularly. And I just tell you this, we need to hear it day after day. We need to sing it Sunday after Sunday. You need to be reminded. And we need to be reminded for various reasons. We live in a world of stain and sin and temptation. And we come in sometimes clouded thinking, how can I possibly be a child of God? And we stand and take communion and remind each other that there is a sacrifice that has washed away our sin. And the angel of death has passed and the wrath of God is removed. We remember that together. Or we come in and look around us and we say, how can that person have done that thing and be called a Christian? And we're reminded that our self-righteousness before God is filthy rags. And we're humbled before him and we're reminded there is only one name under salvation by which men can be saved. What name is that? The name of Jesus. So we come together to remember what Christ has done. We also come to rejoice. And it's a celebratory meal when we come together because as already said by David Garland, this meal uh, anticipates a greater meal. It's anticipatory. The meal is meant to point ahead to a future and final feast that Jesus will eat in his eternal kingdom. So in Luke 22, Jesus says, I will not eat it. And I add in there again until it's fulfilled. Some manuscripts have the word again in there. In the kingdom of God, he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves, for I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Tom Schreiner says, the eschatological dimension of the festival is again noted. Jesus declares that he will not drink the fruit of the vine until God's kingdom comes. Again, we should not interpret this to mean that Jesus uh, abstained from this meal. It means that after this meal, the next time Jesus will drink the wine is at the great messianic banquet to come. And, and that's why we read Isaiah 25 together earlier. That text of scripture that reads this way, On the mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food a feast of well-aged wine, the rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. Isn't that good news? 
And the Lord will wipe away te- all tears, away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. There's a great feast coming. And on that day, all our shame will be taken. While we're gobbling up the food of God, while we're gobbling up rich wine, He will gobble up death once and for all. He has feasted on our sin and death and devoured it completely so that we might feast on His life forevermore. My dear friends, when we take communion and we grab the cup and we're with one another, we're looking around each other and we're reminding each other, yes, we're weak, yes, we're weary, yes, we're weeping, but one day, This wine will be nothing compared to that wine, the sweet wine that we drink in the presence of the Lord. And so, you know, sometimes it's hard to find our way home. We need to take communion together to remind each other there's hope. Hope is the light to help us find our way home, the hope of Christ. I had a dear brother in the Lord call me yesterday, a pastor far from here. Or text me. We're going to talk in a couple of days. And he texted me and he just had a simple line. He said to me, brother, can you pray for me? It's dark. And I'm struggling. And and that should not surprise us. I, I doubt there's a Sunday in Little Waterbrook Church where we don't have somebody coming in where the cry of their soul is, will you help me? It's dark. I can't see my way through, and I don't know how I'm going to do it. And we take the Lord's Supper as a reminder that these sorrows we're in will be swallowed up one day by Jesus. On that day, He will wipe away every tear. My dear friends, do you not need that? It changes the meaning of the Lord's Supper. You can't be casual when you're celebrating and reminding each other of these things. You rejoice, you remember, you rejoice, you repent. The purpose of the Lord's Supper is to remind us of the precious price by which our salvation has been bought. That's repeated throughout the Scriptures, but Jesus, when He takes the bread, He said, this bread is my body. Every time the disciples who betrayed Jesus or denied Jesus or, 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 or doubted Jesus The disciples, every time later when they would take the bread and drink the cup and they would think back to this day, they would see the body with the thorns and the lashes. They would hear the cries. They would see His spilt blood poured out of the pierced side. They wouldn't take their sin lightly anymore. There are reminders in Scripture that we need to be reminded regularly that Christ died to save us from our sin. The Apostle Paul will, I believe he's using Luke in his writing, and Luke traveled with him a lot. He'll write to the Corinthian church and say these words, For I received from the Lord which I also delivered to you, 
that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you drink, eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And then he writes, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks, drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if you judged yourself truly, we would not be judged. Hear what he's saying here? He's telling the Corinthian Christians that when you take communion, it's an opportunity to do some self-evaluation. Not self-condemnation, self-evaluation, self-examination, so that you may eat the bread and drink the cup. Every time we take communion, we're giving each other an opportunity to realize the cost and the consequence of our sin. And to plead with God. And to cry out to Jesus. And to be forgiven even now. Some of you right now, as we consider the cross of Christ. Right now, you, you just can stop and say, Jesus, thank you. And I'm so sorry. And help me. Spurgeon wrote this. He says, the distinct object of examination is so that the communicant may eat and drink of the Lord's table. In some churches, there's a practice which is called fencing the table, defending the table of the Lord against the approach of improper characters. This is a very right and necessary thing to do, but some ministers have so guarded the table that very few have dared to come to it. And those who have come have often been persons who have more conceit than grace, while the better part, the truly humble and brokenhearted ones, have been frightened away. It would appear that these exhortations, these ministers, as if Paul might have said, let a man examine himself, and net of it, but never let him eat of the bread or drink of the cup. Let him so examine himself that lie sh shall come to the conclusion that he has no right to sit at the table of the Lord and shall go away feeling that he's utter unworthy of this high privilege. Beloved friends, that's not the object of my preaching in this text, nor should it be yours in obeying it. Examine yourselves with the hope and strong desire that you may be permitted to eat it. that helpful? That the goal is to repent and to confess your sins because if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive your sins and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. So here's, here's a few questions to ask yourself when you're examining yourself at communion. Do I truly believe that Jesus Christ shed his blood for me? And the only hope of my salvation is his body and blood sacrificed on the cross. Number two, am I gen genuinely humbled and amazed by the depth of his love for me such that I want to turn away from sin and seek his face by grace with his help? Does his kindness lead me to repentance? Thirdly, am I looking to the cross and to the, to the Christ for the power and strength to battle sin and live for holiness. Where does my help come from? See, the, sometimes our, our, our battle gets reinvigorated at communion. So we consider the death of Christ as we're reminded, you go, God, I just allowed myself to drift. 
from what is precious. And you're awakened by the power of the Holy Spirit and you're reinvigorated. Some of you today, as we take communion, maybe this is a time to recommit your life to Jesus Christ. Maybe today's the day to just get honest with your heart and say, I've been living in the shadows. I've been afraid to come into the light. Don't be afraid to come into the light. If you confess your sins, he loves to forgive sins. That's been Luke's argument. The Lord's Supper affords us the opportunity to return, to repent, and to recognize our need of the always available grace of God to sinners. We need to be continually reminded of the weight of our sin, but also the worth of Jesus Christ, right? And finally, resolve (laughs) should give us resolve. And what I mean by this, the Lord's Supper produces community. It perpetually marks out our identity as new covenant community, as a new covenant community, and shapes how we live in relationship to one another as Christians. And so as Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper, he's identifying his people around this meal as a people who are to love. So in Luke's gospel, it's interesting, as opposed to some of the other gospels, he says, do this in remembrance of me. It's my body given for you. This is my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. And some commentators, which I think have some weight because of 1 Corinthians 11, some commentators argue Jesus is saying, just as I have given my life for you, you go and give your lives for one another. So you're not just remembering in the sense what he's done for you, but you're applying this out in the life of believers. So that's why in the Gospel of John, chapter 13, when Jesus um, is having the Lord's Supper and Judas betrays him, right after Judas betrays him, Jesus says these words, a new commandment I have given to you that you should what? Love one another just as I have loved you. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the Apostle Paul uh, has a, a, a good corrective um, to, the, to the disciples because when he's, or to the people at Corinth because he, he corrects them by saying, I've given you this institution, but he says, what do you do when you come together? You separate yourself. You, you do it according to the world. The rich sit over here. The poor sit over here. You, you, ha- you have your meals like the culture does that you sit with those that you want to identify with. And he corrects them by pointing them to the Lord's Supper. It should not be this way. You should do it the way that Christ did it for you. Aren't you glad that Jesus, that God is no, um, pre- gives no preference to people based on race and wealth and, and public prestige, but he puts the table on a common level. Uh, when I first pastored, I, the church I went to um, was a formal church, and it had a choir and robes and a platform and very traditional big old pews and um, the communion table sat up front and center. And one of the first things I did when I got the nerve up to do it is I moved the communion table down to the floor because I wanted to communicate something. We're in this together, and I'm as much in need. There's no priesthood except for the high priesthood of Jesus Christ. And when we participate in this, we are participating together to minister to one another, to share in one another, and to love one another the way that Christ has loved us. Now, last night, um, 
Marianne and I went to the, up to Blaine late in the evening last night and went to the National Sports Center because a friend of ours' daughter was playing soccer. Um, there's, a, there's a college showcase. She's a junior in high school. And so we went up to watch Sophie play soccer. Uh, she's actually playing in the snow <laughs> outside this morning. She was in the dome last night, so it was very convenient. Um, but, you know, one, one of the great joys for us is that our friends were not able to have children, and so they adopted Sophie from China. And that was quite the process to get her from an orphanage in China. And now to see her, she's like family to us, to see Soph as a junior in high school running around playing soccer. She's super smart. She's, she wants to be a software engineer. She, um, she ca- you know, and all of those things ultimately don't matter, the soccer engineering, but one of the things that's been marvelous to us is that not only did they bring her from the other side of the world, but they brought her from death to life because she loves Jesus. She's a strong follower of Jesus Christ and delights in him. There's nothing more that we want for other people than to hear of the hope of the gospel, to come and be commended and to be connected. The thing is, it doesn't matter whether she came from an orphanage. It doesn't matter that she looks different than everybody else on the soccer field that looks Scandinavian. It doesn't matter where she has come from. Here's the thing. There is one common ground. There is one people from every tribe and tongue and nation that have been made one through the blood of Jesus Christ. That is our hope and that's our identity and we are to live that out. So every time we take communion, we're looking at this and saying this, if Christ so loved us. Right? You can hear it. Let us then love one another. Communion is an argument against self-centeredness. Communion is an argument against racism. Communion is an argument against you and I thinking we can go and do our own thing. My dear friends, we are not a bunch of people. There is one church under Jesus Christ. And we need each other. I've been arguing this with the hope that you would never see communion again the same. We need to do four things. When we take communion, we look back. And see what Christ has done for us and finish for us. Friends, it is finished. Christ has done it all. We look ahead. There is a better day coming because Jesus died on the cross. There is a great feast coming and he'll swallow up death and wipe away every tear. We need to look in and say, God, help me with my sin. I'll never be worthy. He's worthy, but he is worthy. Help me repent and follow him. And then we look around. We say to one another, he died for you. He died for us. He came to save those who are unlike us. Praise God. Let us love one another the way Christ has loved us. God's people said, amen. Amen. Anybody in need of a communion cup? If you got some over here, just keep your hands raised. and Let's just quiet our hearts. Let me fence the table and say, if you're not a believer, um, please don't take communion. But let me invite you to come to Jesus and take communion. 
you come to Christ and trust him, but this is no boasting for us. This is what Christ has given us to boast in him. He alone is our hope. Um, if you are, you know, came in today just with a, a deep sense of the darkness of guilt and shame, let me say to you, remember that Christ died for your sins. If you're battling anxiety and fear about the future, let me just tell you right now that there's a better day coming. If you are wrestling with your sin right now, let me invite you just, before we take communion, confess your sin and trust in Him. And if you've got wrong attitudes towards one another, confess that too. And let's reconcile with one another so that we might glorify God. So let's prepare. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you were able to seek, savor, and share the all-surpassing worth of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to find out more about our church, submit a prayer request, watch previous sermons, go to www.waterbrook.church. Have a blessed week.